Hello Sword People, welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training and bring the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with Peter Lyon, swordsmith and weapons designer, founder of Lioness Armoury in 1994, and most famously the sword maker producing the weapons for the Lord of the Rings movies. So, without further ado, Peter, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, just to orient everybody, whereabouts in the world are you? Uh, I'm in New Zealand, so, yeah. Think of uh, somewhere that's furthest away from the bright centre of the world, and I'm there. Well, okay. especially if it's to do with historical weapons, we're rather short on them. <laughs> right. Um, so you're sort of near Wellington, correct? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And and you know one of the, one of the weird things about running a podcast is I have to ask questions that I already know the answers to because I've actually met yeah. you in Wellington and yes. you've given me lifts to places. Yeah. And the <laughs> so. beauty is you can you can edit everything that doesn't work. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, uh, being a smith is some kind of, it's, it's like a dream job for many people because you get to spend all day you know, working with swords and making swords and it's extremely cool. So I do have to ask, how, how did you get started with that? Uh, well, well, it all came about because I got into medieval reenactment back in the early 80s and uh, New Zealand being New Zealand and there being no internet really, uh, the only way to get stuff was to make stuff. So at one point we actually got a, a one-sheet uh, brochure from somebody in the UK for helmet bowls and things like that. Like we were operating at that sort of level. Right. And so it worked out that the only way that we could get stuff was to make it. So I started making things for myself and then other people started asking me if I could do things for them. And uh, it slowly grew from there. So what sort of things were you making? Uh, I started off with weapons and armour. So it was a lot of basic things like uh, great helms and helmets made on spun bowls, uh, swords, of course. Um, But yeah, becoming a specialist sword maker came later. So So I dabbled in a few things. For for people listening who don't have the the technical background, what is a spun bowl? Okay, it's... It's a, it's a modern manufacturing technique. Actually, not that modern, because the Romans did it too. Okay. Um, where you take a sheet of metal, and you put it in a lathe, and as, it, as you spin it over a die, you are pressing it down over the die with a tool and forming it into a bowl from a sheet. Okay, so it's you're a little, taking... It's a little bit involved. So, so you're, you're taking... So pre-made steel bowls and making yes. helmets out of that. Oh, okay. Um, all right, I'm, I'm curious. Romans were doing this. Yeah, I haven't seen the, any archaeological reports, but I have actually read that ro- some Roman helmets were made from spun bowls. Okay. Well, they definitely had lathes back then, but not, not sort of high-powered modern ones. They'd be sort of foot-powered no. pole lathes, I'd imagine. Yeah, but then with water power... You could probably do quite a bit too. Oh my god! Yes, so there's a I, I whole. Love... 
Yes, I would love to see the archaeological reports on that, but it's just it's a one-liner I picked up from history books. Okay, that's fascinating because because it's it's a little bit like that line in Highlander where where they they're analysing this little tiny bit of this katana, which is like yes, really really With really carbon, old. Yes, using carbon fourteen dating on a piece of steel. Yeah, we know how well that works, don't we? <laughs> yeah, are, are you suggesting that the movie Highlander takes certain liberties with the truth and reality? Really? Oh, no, it's a, it's a documentary. <laughs> it's also, so it is also one of my favourite movies. Yeah, so you chop somebody's head off and you, you get this lightning show, yes? Yeah, yeah. Okay, that, that's why people do it. Um, I mean, the obvious question I always had was, so why don't they just wear steel collars? Yeah, I've thought the same thing. Like, you you think they they would just always have a gorget on? Yeah, I mean it's just like times, just in it case. just seems pointless to to not protect your head that that way. But hey, right? I guess it would have made so. for a much longer movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, <laughs> clang, bugger it! He's got the collar on. Clang, yeah. no, can't cut through it. And then they they have to kind of they have to fight with um, like steel cutting circular saws, like. Zzz. <laughs> That wouldn't be nearly such a good movie. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but, but it just reminded me of, of that that quote. Like it's like it's like finding a jumbo jet in the Stone Age, finding this bit yep. of steel. Right. Um, so, oh, we we could dive into a great big thing about Roman archaeology, but I think we should probably <laughs> stick with the swords for now. Um, so there you are, sort of working as a swordsmith, and then uh, what? Peter Jackson rings you up and says. Pete, I need some swords. Hmm. Not, well, wow. not quite like that. So I started making swords in 82, mm-hmm. um, and I became a full-time weapons and armour maker in 94, because mm-hmm. I thought I could make a living out of it, and I sort of, I struggled know. along, and then in 1998, I got a phone call from Richard Taylor. Now... This is, one of, this is one of those things of um, serendipity in the film industry in particular. Because a friend of mine who was a stunty in, uh, several years earlier had said, you should go and meet Richard Taylor. He's doing interesting stuff. He you know, might be able to use your talents someday. And he was working on the TV series of um, Hercules at the time, doing creatures and props. So I showed him what I did. Um, he didn't have anything that needed real swords at the time, but he was really interested. And then a couple of years after that, he gave me a phone call and said, hey, we've got a project that we're working on, early stages, and uh, do you want to come in and we'll have a talk? And of okay. course, at the time, I didn't even know that was Lord of the Rings. Yep. To show you just how um, how much I can sometimes miss the blindingly obvious, the, you know, you know, like the, um, the classic... Uh, police lineup of different different figures there yeah. was a chart showing different figures of hobbits and dwarves and men and giants and treants and i saw that and i never clicked because they weren't <laughs> allowed they weren't allowed to tell me what the project was at the time because right. i hadn't signed anything okay <laughs> but yes so, i eventually got i eventually got the word that yes it was lord of the rings uh, okay so so richard taylor um basically hires you to make the weapons for Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Armour as well initially, 
but mm-hmm. they hired two specialist armourers. So one day I said to Richard, look, you've got two armourers already. I'd be happy if if I just did the swords and let them do all the armour. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I became a specialist sword maker that day. Okay. So that must have been not necessarily easier, but a more steady way of making a living than actually making swords for individuals. Uh, it was busy, but what mm-hmm. it was, was a, it was a, it was a good steady income. That's for sure. Right. And I was, yes. definitely wasn't short of work. Yeah. So uh, am I right in thinking you weren't being paid by the piece? You had been like hired as the swords yes, maker. Yeah. I, I was on an hourly rate because you've also got to remember, it's not just about making the swords. It's about having meetings, uh, and discussing how things are going to be used on set. So mm-hmm. then you build it optimized to a certain way it's going to be used and things mm-hmm. like that so there's always these extra things that uh you know they're the overheads of time that go with any business and uh but yeah but in the case of the swords um yeah i made the swords as swords but there was always a few other things like i was talking to designers about uh what they were designing and sometimes i'd drop an idea in about how it might be work better on screen if we did a certain thing or that little lovely little detail that you're showing there is going to take a lot of extra work but you know uh, may not be be seen that much little things like that yeah because of course i was given finished designs to build right okay and uh yeah so my thing was interpreting that two-dimensional pencil quite often design Mm-hmm. into a three-dimensional object and then also making it work as a sword. Okay, so some somebody who may not know anything about swords at all has thought, ah, do you know what? I think Sting should look like this and sketched it out yep. and handed you the sketch and then you have to make it. Yeah, Though, they, they, were well-developed, they were well-developed designs by the time they came to me. Mm-hmm. And luckily we had John Howe as one of the lead designers and at the time he was... Um, Ah, uh, a Swiss reenactment company. I can't remember the company of St. George. Okay. Yeah. And, and he was a member of that at the time. So not only was he a, a, a Tolkien illustrator, he was also doing reenactment and swinging swords and wearing armor. So he actually understood how things should work. So that even though helpful. he drew fantastical things, he always made sure that they, they actually could work if you made them for real, so swords that wouldn't be too heavy, armour you could actually move in, things like that. Handy. Um, So, okay, so what was the hardest thing about that process for you, actually making the objects? For me, it was actually, making the swords was easy. Understanding how the film industry works, that took me a lot longer to get my head around. Like, one of the classic things was, on Lord of the Rings like a lot of films everything is aged they're made and then they're aged so they're two separate Mm -hmm. processes and of course those processes take it actually takes more effort to age something nicely than it does to just make a nice clean sword or whatever yeah and so the hardest thing i i had to get my head around was that i make these lovely new swords and then i make them look old (laughs) and and come up with techniques for doing that I, I can sympathise because I used to work as an antiques restorer, and if you have to replace a part on a piece of furniture, you have to age it in to, the, to look like yeah. the rest of it. 
so that it doesn't sort of, it's not glaring. Um, and yeah, getting a, a cloth bag full of nails and bolts and things nice. and bashing a piece of wood that you've spent ages getting nice and shiny is, is really, it's an odd way to behave. Yep. So how do you age the swords? Um, I've come up with different processes. I Again, I, I did a bit of reading, but when I started on Lord of the Rings, of course, there was effectively no internet. So learning these techniques was hard. So... I did experiments with acids, uh, acid resist to give a, a stippled effect so I could get very small localised um, pitting and then getting some general rusting and then cutting that back to get the right look for the sword. And then, of okay. course, sealing it so it wouldn't keep ageing. <laughs> well, yes. What did you yeah. seal it with? Uh, and, yeah, and over the years I've tried different things out and I've come up with a couple of Fairly simple but quite effective processes for getting that aged look. Okay, and what what do you seal them with to prevent them from aging? Um, or is that proprietary? Uh, microcrystalline wax, basically. Uh, okay. Our go-to at Wetter is Autosol, so it's Autosol, actually a right. it's actually an automotive um, polish and wax, but it's similar to museum wax, but with uh, with a bit of a very fine polish built into it. So the more you use it, the more shiny a sword gets. Ah, okay. Now that that is that I, I bet you anything you like, there are going to be people who are going to be emailing me after this goes live, going, "Guy, Autosol, it's amazing. That's fantastic. Tell Peter he's a genius." <laughs> because it wasn't it's, even, it's, sorry, it wasn't even my idea. Somebody showed <laughs> it to me back then. And yeah, yeah of course it was I. I, I use Renaissance wax on, on my swords, which is basically the same stuff, mm. but it's really expensive and it doesn't have a polishing compound in it. So, yeah. But it does go a long way. Sure. Yeah. Okay. And, and what um, you said you had like a, a process for aging the swords. Um, I do. Do you, do you want to share it or do you want to keep it secret? Uh, I think I might try and. It's taken me a long time to develop this and to, okay. to simplify it. So it's actually one that I think I'll, I'll keep. Fair enough. Absolutely fair uh, enough. Every, just just okay. please, every, write it down aging. somewhere. Write yeah. it down somewhere. And yes. um, in, the, in the event of you changing your mind at some point in the future, mm-hmm. that the process may not be lost. Yeah, fair enough. I've got an apprentice, so I'm teaching him these things. And oh, he okay. might come up with his own ideas too. But everyone who does aging on swords and armor and other things has their own little tricks. So what I'm doing, I'll guarantee it's not unique and uh, somebody else is probably doing it. But it's just I've spent a, a great many years figuring this one out. <laughs> yeah, fine. It's, you, you, I, I don't want to um, <laughs> extract any proprietary information from you. <laughs> that would be a shame. Um, okay. Now, when I was doing some research for this, and it's funny, you never mentioned this to me when on the occasions that we've met in New Zealand, um, but you also worked on Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yeah, and that you was can't actually quite see cool. It. Yeah, you can't, you can't see it, but on that door over there, I have yes. two bullwhips, a hat uh-huh. that is pretty <laughs> reminiscent of, the, and I have a jacket that was made in the same factory to the same design, Peter Botwright's factory yeah. in London, 
uh, of the Raiders of the Lost Ark jacket. I am a massive Indiana Jones fan. So, cool. <laughs> so, yeah. Tell us about making the swords for Indiana Jones and yeah. the Kingdom of the Crystal okay. Skull. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I love the Indiana Jones movies too, and uh, so for me it was actually quite a buzz when it when Weta got the job to make the case of dueling swords, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, they're. Um, so what it is, they're, they're a case of dueling swords. They're used in that scene where they're, they're doing this chase on jeeps through the forest, I think it is. It's a very and odd location a, for a sword fight. And having it a really sword is. duel at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's very odd, but it's very interesting. And, of course, because it's all so fast, you don't get to see a lot of the swords. But they're just nice uh, triangular section bladed epées. Okay. And, uh, so, so um, just you just got the job to make them like, oh, we've got Indiana Jones contract coming in. Yep. Peter, yep. can you make us a couple of swords? Yeah. Okay. It's not quite that simple usually. Like, Weta has to really chase these contracts quite hard. Okay. Um, like, Weta's always on a short list for these things. But, of course, so are a number of other props houses. Mm-hmm. So Weta chases these jobs. They try and get ones that are suited for their the people that they've got working there, and they managed to uh, reel that one in. It seems a lot of work for what can't be a very big contract. I know. The the overheads that go with these things are quite surprising. Like, on some projects, your administration and your design work is actually more than building some of the stuff. Sure. It's just It's just because you've got all the these people talking to each other, directors deciding what something should look like, uh, mm-hmm. design passes, and then, yeah, uh, everyone's got everyone's got a, their own thing that they can put into the mix, like how it's got to be lit and all this stuff. It's a really, really technical, technical process at a certain level. And then I just make a sword. <laughs> okay, so, so you've sort of got the easy bit at the end. Just, just bash out a sword. And now I have to ask: Did am I right in thinking you didn't make the Nazca dagger in that movie? There's this no. dagger that. No, okay, I because I've I've seen that dagger, uh, photographs of it up close, and honestly, it's not really up to your standards, sir. They should have got you to make that one too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, they missed one there. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's something that really surprised a lot of people. Things that look really good on screen, especially when they're moving, a lot of these props, if you actually get them up close, you realise a lot of them are actually not that flash. Interesting. Whereas whereas what we try and do at Weta is always we're trying to go above and beyond whatever they think they need. And yeah, otherwise, um, yeah, they're built as props. And sometimes okay. they don't look that cool. So for this pair of dueling swords did you do you make just that one pair or is there a, is there one set for actually whacking with and another set for close-ups now now i've got to remember i think i made a pair of steel swords and then i probably made two or four aluminium blades that would have urethane hilts cast onto them and the molds for those hilts were made from the hero steel swords and so that way you can get a perfect reproduction of the hilt, but you get an aluminium blade if you want it lighter. And then the whole sword is lighter. The actors can 
flick them around faster so they look more impressive, and they do less damage if they hit each other. And uh, quite often, and I can't remember if it was on that film, but quite often on films we also have to make things like soft rubber versions. So wow. that if they're actually whacking each other, uh, they've either got a solid urethane sword, or in some cases it's actually a um, spongy urethane foam that's really, really light and a bit bouncy, where actors actually have to hit each other hard with these things. Huh. So, yeah, I, so there's a lot of, yeah, so for, a, say, a sword that you see in a movie, there could actually be three or four different versions of that sword for different purposes because like you don't want your actors smacking each other with steel swords because you know yes. they're expensive actors you don't want to break them <laughs> yes. and uh makeup gets upset if you have to cover up scratches and things so <laughs> they they sometimes request we need special swords where these actors can actually hit each other at speed without hurting each other but so you'd have either an steel bladed one or an aluminium bladed one yep. or, or, or a, a urethane one urethane. or even so a soft is, one what is urethane exactly uh, it, it's a two part um, it's a two part plastic okay. it's uh, yeah they, they come in what's called different shore hardnesses so from very mm. soft through to very very firm ones that are also tend to be a bit brittle and wet has got one that's a, a happy medium that's um, solid enough but uh, not brittle. Okay. And when we're making urethane swords, quite often the master for that has to be made thicker than the steel one because um, you have to get an armature inside it, which is often a bit of spring steel wire or something like that. Okay. But then it means that the blade often has to be thicker than a real blade because you've just got to make it with room for that and a skinning of urethane over it. Oh, I see. So you have like a, a wire to give it some structure yeah. and then you yeah. cast Other, the Otherwise you get that classic thing you see in movies from the 50s where their rubber swords are flailing everywhere. <laughs> yeah, flapping about. You remember, <laughs> you remember Ivanhoe? Yes. Things like that. Mm. Yep. Yeah, some of those fight scenes are pretty dreadful when you look at them now. <laughs> Ah, uh, but they, they did their job of getting a generation of oh, kids yeah. mad about swords. So hey, yeah, I wasn't I didn't criticize that when I first saw it. No, for sure. Um and you also did Last Samurai, is that correct? Yeah, that was a really good project to work on. Um because I'd never done katanas before. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting on that one was that the the production people had actually bought some antique katanas which were going to be the ones that the actors were going to use. Now the problem is real katanas tend to be sharp. Yes. So and you can't give an actor a sharp sword on set because it's it's not just the actor, it's everyone around them that's in danger. Yeah. Like it's like loaded guns on set. Yes. As we've seen from a recent accident. Um but yeah, a sword is like a gun with no safety. So yeah. a sharp sword is the last thing you want on set unless it's got a really, really particular purpose. So the fact that they bought antiques meant that we couldn't use the antique blades. So the blades were actually removed from the hilts. I made mm. copies of those blades out of spring steel, but with blunt edges. And then uh, had a, came out with a technique for creating a fake Harman line 
mm-hmm. and uh, that worked very effectively, and then fitted that back to the original hilts. And also, prob- we had to mould those too. Yeah, I, sh- I should probably mention for for non specialist listeners that taking a blade off a Japanese sword is knocking out a little bamboo pin, yep. and it just slides right off. It's, it's not yep. like a, a doing that to European an antique sword. European sword. You'd have to grind off the rivet at yes. the end of the tang, yep. and you'd actually and then damage break the, the weapon. Glues. Yeah, yes. yeah. Uh, that's the one thing I did like about the katanas. Um, yeah, very easy to dismantle. And it was really cool handling antique swords. Like one of them was 17th century. I think Lovely. one other was 19th century. Okay. Uh, yeah, some really nice swords. So, so you made so you had the original antique swords, and you made like spring steel blades to yep. fit into the hilt, so they could have a yep. blunt sword yep. with you and with the proper aluminium hilt. blades. Mm-hmm. Aluminium blades for some of the sword fighting scenes. Yep. Yep. So where they're where they're fighting, those will be. Okay, what happens is you don't use the steel swords for fighting usually. Um, I know in some films where they have limited budgets, they have to, and, and you get that that funny effect of, in one scene, the sword will be chewed to pieces because they've obviously been been fighting with them a lot. The next scene, the blade is clean, and yeah. then it's chewed up, and then it's clean. <laughs> because, of course, they shoot things out of sequence. Yeah. But you also don't want to mess up your, your steel blade usually. They're there for those close-up hero shots so that then you have a bunch of aluminium blades with urethane hilts and what happens there is because every moment on set is expensive you want to be cycling through those swords take after take and between takes just firing off any little notches and things that they've got on them burrs that have come from aluminium being smacked against aluminium and then the actor's always got a sword that's got nothing that's going to do things like tear skin or anything nasty like that. So you typically have two, three, or four aluminium-bladed swords that they can fight with. And then you might also have uh, urethane swords, though I don't think that we did much of that for Last Samurai, except for background. Interesting. So the whole sword would be made out of, sort of cast out of resin? In some cases, Yes. So how do you make a resin copy of a samurai sword? I mean, it, makes, it, it has a cloth-bound hilt, usually, yep. and shark skin and ray yep. skin and yep. various... But how do you You don't do any that? of that. Well, you make okay. one master, then you mould it. Uh, you put a lot of release on it so that the silicon of the mould doesn't grab into the things like the cloth bindings and just okay. tear them off pull it out the mould and then uh, the, the urethane sword is cast with all of those details built in and then it's all a paint job at that point. Clean up the seams and do a good paint job and these urethane swords can be pretty convincing. Well yeah I've, I've, I don't think I've ever watched a movie and gone that sword's made out of resin. But I should be watching oh. much more closely now. You you obviously don't watch movies the way I watch movies. No, obviously not. Uh, I, I actually hate it sometimes because I just can't watch a movie with swords anymore I, because I'm always looking at the swords, not the movie. To, to be honest, I tend to avoid movies that have sword fights in them because yes. I'm looking at how they're fighting and if it isn't right, I'm oh. just... Okay, Under. you'll be disappointed with most films then. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, most films, most films with sword fights in. I mean, I, yeah. I, it, I, even if 
And even if the director wants it to be a really nice technical sword fight, most actors are actors, they're not sword fighters. So you, you've got to work within the limits of what you've got, unless you're going to do something like Princess Bride, where they spent months I was, building up the skill set to do that. I was going to say, like, like I've read um, Carrie Elwes' memoir of Making Princess Bride. It's called As You Wish. Of course it's called As You Wish. What else could it be called? Um, and, yeah, going into the details, they had a fight director each, training them in every moment between yeah. takes. Uh, like for months, as you said, for months. But did you know that Kerry Elwood broke his toe riding a quad bike just before they shot that fight? He did that entire fight with a broken yep. toe. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> okay. Yep. That just says a bit more spice. <laughs> that yeah. must. That really must have hurt. Um, okay. So, uh, as you know, I oh, I actually have a question. Um, if you've got aluminium blades being whacked together, they are not going to sound right. So am I right in thinking that all of yeah. these sounds are added afterwards? Oh, yeah. Yep, totally. There's very little on-set sound that's used in a film these days. The problem is, even if you've got everyone on set being quiet, you've got things like fans and electric motors and cameras whirring and all this stuff happening in the background. And because the sound equipment is so sensitive, just about nothing that's recorded on set is able to be used. So everything is re-recorded post-production in a so, studio. So even like speeches and what have you? Yep. That must be really hard. It is. You look at some old films where they were doing that and you can see that they're not synced properly. Yeah. Whereas these days there's all sorts of software to... So in the studio, the actor does their lines again and does all the emoting and everything else. Of course, they'll never exactly match their timing in the in the film. So uh, there's there's a whole lot of software now that lets you tweak things so that you match the studio sound up to what was recorded in the picture. So wow. you're basically syncing the actor back to themselves. Oh, it's it is so technical, and like I don't really know how it all works. <laughs> but am I right in thinking that there is a particular two-handed sword that that made the sword clashy sound for the Lord of the Rings movies? Yeah. Um, well, well, me and a bunch of friends that were doing sword fighting at the time, they, they put out the word saying, hey, we need to get some sword sounds. So uh, several of us that had swords went out with their sound recording people to a graveyard because, hey, nobody's going to disturb you in a graveyard. And uh, they did sound recording just of swords striking together. And so that was all part of the library of sounds that they were building up. And uh, I'm sure a lot of that got used in the film. All right. So, so they just recorded like a bunch of sword clashes and just put them yep. in at the right time. Exactly. Yep. Huh. So, so they record discrete sound bites and then all that gets blended and overlaid in the film. Right. So there isn't somebody standing there with two swords whacking them together in time with the sword fight? No. No, <laughs> not. <laughs> I, I, I think that has been done. I'm yeah, not, it'd not... be hard to do it well, though. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I have this, this vivid recollection of... Um, there was this fantastic 
fencing coach in Scotland called Professor Bert Bracewell. Lovely, lovely man. Mm-hmm. And he also did some stage combat. Um, well, he, he choreographed some fights, but he also trained stage combat people. I, I seem to remember him saying that for some of these things, the one of the jobs of the fight director, because they knew the rhythm of the fight, was to go into the studio afterwards and, and sort of bash swords together in the yeah. right rhythm. Um, okay, so I, 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 I could be introducing Professor Bracewell horribly. But. Uh, yeah, but it's also the way things are done have changed a lot over the years. Like back in the 80s, maybe that's what they did. But these days, directors and everyone are so picky that, uh, at least on high-end films with big budgets, that they want everything perfect. So then you suddenly get down to, you're breaking everything down into very discrete units to get get everything you want, like sound and picture and everything else, just so. Right. And, and of course, then the great big making of DVD series, which is like 10 times as long as the original (laughs) movie. Yep. I, I never watch those because I don't. I don't want to peek behind the curtain. I, oh, there, I actually, if Helen would let me, I'd probably go for those first every time. Actually, because I'm always interested in how did they do that. Yeah. Uh, well, I just want to be entertained. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so so do so do I. But but also I can't help having that curiosity. Sure. Um, okay. So. Um, I've, I've had a couple of Smiths on the show so far um, and everyone's process is a bit different. So if you're making a sword that's actually going to be used, what's the process? Okay, well, okay, obviously I get a design. So I'm not a designer. We have a special design crew that does this and uh, you know, they're, they're people one day they might be designing swords, the next day they might be designing spaceships. Okay. So... They're not specialists, but what they do is they know how to design to the needs of a director, and then the director gives feedback and says, okay, more of this, don't bother about that other stuff you did, that, that's just not the look I've got in mind. And so eventually I get a finished or near finished design, and if I'm lucky, I get a little bit of input through the process if there, there are questions about you know, what works, what's going to be a bit easier, stuff like that. But once I get the design my job is to build a sword that meets their needs. Some cases, uh, the, the one blade has to both be a hero steel blade and a master for the urethanes. Mm-hmm. And in that case, uh, the blade has to be too thick compared to a, what I would consider a proper steel blade. But uh, I try and balance that out to make it as you know suitable as possible. Like Sometimes the one sword has to do two jobs. Moldmaster as well as Hero Sword. And uh, I always try and keep in mind who's going to be using this. So one good example there is Liv Tyler from Lord of the Rings playing mm-hmm. Arwen. So I knew that she she wasn't Arwen Warrior Princess and that uh, there was no point giving her a sword that was a bit on the heavy side because she'd probably just ask for the aluminium one because yeah. it's less hassle. So for that one, I was putting a lot of effort into making the blade thin quite a lot towards the tip, remove as much weight as possible out of the tip and make the sword nice and light. You don't see any of that on screen, but if it helps the actor and it makes the actor happier to use that sword, then 
you know, you see more of the hero sword than you might otherwise. Uh, okay. On the other hand, you get somebody like Sean Bean, and I know that, like, you know, from Sharp and things like that, that he knows how to use a sword, he's a solid guy. So the fact that uh, Boromir's sword weighed four pounds didn't matter. So that was a really That's heavy, a heavy sword. It oh is. God. But the design saved me on that one because the design was for a very broad blade, but with a massive pommel on it. So that pommel actually pulled the center of balance back to about one inch along the blade. Oh, wow. So Very instead of killing much. your wrist by, by the amount of torque that it's putting on your wrist, it was just a heavy sword, but it actually moved well in the hand. Huh. That's, that's really interesting. So, so you get this design, and then cause the design won't include things like point of balance. No, no. I look at the design and... and Again, I've made hundreds of swords, so I can typically look at a European sword design and just figure out the bulk of things like the pommel and the blade and, and just think, okay, if I don't have to make this blade too thick, if I can make it actually a nice, realistic steel blade thickness, I can look at a sword and have an idea of how it's likely to balance what its weight's going to be and how it's liable to handle, and uh, then tweak it from there. Like, as I'm building it, of course... As I'm doing the grinds on a blade, I can tweak it to change the flex, uh, the distal taper, the weight balance, things like that, and just tweak the components as I'm putting them together. And of course, it doesn't matter to the actors. The director doesn't care as long as they get the prop they want, but I'm a sword maker, so I care. Right, yeah. You've got to, you've got to do it right. Um, so are, are they mostly made by stock removal, or do you forge them, or...? Yes, mostly stock removal. I only forge blades that, for example, uh, blades with curvature that would just be a bit wasteful trying to cut out of one big steel blank. Uh, but yeah, typically most of the blades are still ground. These days we are CNCing a few blades because um, we're starting, the tendency these days is fewer steel swords because they're really, really expensive. But you have more hero aluminium swords that uh, taken to a really high finish, but they're aluminium, which it means that you can see and see the whole blade out. And uh, we're doing a lot more. So the way things have changed, Lord of the Rings, there was bugger all computer stuff. So, you know, we had pen and pencil drawings to work from and things like that. These days, uh, quite often things are 3D modelled to show the director how something looks in the round before it's ever built. And because we've got a 3D model, we can work out tool pathing to CNC components out. Uh, we can get components direct metal printed or printed oh. into wax and then cast. So what is so direct the, metal printed? Uh, it's literally that. You know, um, uh, you know, plastic printers for yep. building models and things. Yep. Right. There are versions of those that will directly print into metals. Huh. So they they use laser sintering to fuse the layers together. Okay, this is blowing okay. my mind. Yeah, well, pretty much, this is this is both one of the beauties and banes of the situation today is that anything you can draw and design on a computer screen, you can now construct by machining, printing, uh, casting, whatever. 
So what it means is like on Lord of the Rings, the shapes that I got were pretty much dictated by by the time I had available and the machines that I had to do it on. Whereas these days, uh, you can do anything like fancy geometric patterns like the, the, the dwarves and the hobbit had a lot of these swords with very uh, ornate blades and hilts on them. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, they were all 3D designed, printed, uh, machined out of aluminium, things like that. So you can I, get much I, more complex. How, how like, do you 3D print a sword hilt? Um, how do you get the blade you know, um, well, you allow for that in the model, and this is this is where hopefully the people on the computers actually talk to me before they do it because <laughs> sometimes 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 you need to remind people you put a sword together by sliding things on. Yeah. Um, and so if you can't slide it on to its final position, it's not going to work. Uh, it's something that we call the piano in the room problem. Right. Um, the piano is in the room. But how did the piano get into the room? It couldn't have got through the door. Like, well, there's my, no way my, the piano could have got into the room, but it's in the room. And yeah, that's the my, problem with your assembling things that have been 3D designed sometimes. My, my sister has a piano in her living room because she plays piano. And there's absolutely no way it could get up those stairs and through the door. Exactly. Because, but it's in well, the room. Yeah, they took so, the windows uh, out. So they craned oh, it. They, okay, they, I was just wondering, used, is it... Is it Schrodinger's piano? No, no, it's not Schrodinger's piano. They they took the windows out and they kind of craned <laughs> it through. <laughs> yep. Um, so yeah, are, but you, you can't just take the windows out of a sword hilt. No, no. So little things like yeah, you have to think about the fact that you assemble have to be able to assemble something. It doesn't just be in an, an assembled state. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. So yeah, little things. Okay, so you've got um, if you have a a CNC blade out of steel, mm-hmm. you can then heat treat it like any other yep. steel. Okay, so I assume you do that for the sword so they don't get yeah. We don't do that so much with steel unless the yeah. unless there's a lot of precision needed with alumi- with the aluminiums. Um, Particularly the particular aluminiums that we use, which are a springy type, they machine really well, and you can just machine your final shape because yeah. there's no heat treatment needed after that. But with steel blades, because they've got to be heat treated and then you might have to straighten them, there's always more grinding to do. So you can't get quite a finished shape with a steel blade. So uh, some sometimes there's not actually that much use in trying to machine it, uh, or, you know, CNC it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's easier just to actually grind a blade and then heat treat it. Uh, it's less work okay. than all that 3D modeling and and, uh, okay, and so setting what up is, machines and stuff. What is the difference between grinding a blade and CNCing it? Um, okay, companies like Albion they CNC their blades, but uh, it was a really interesting. I always thought that they machined that their blanks to quite a near finish before they mm-hmm. heat treated them. But then, uh, when I was visiting Peter Johnson a few years ago, he showed me a blade as it comes off the machine, and I realised it's only about two thirds ground. It's got a third of the weight left in it okay. for the heat treating. And so, even though you've bulked out a lot of it, there's still a lot of um, hand grinding to do to get that final shape. 
and okay, so, so for me, for me, starting from a solid uh, blank of uh, spring steel strip is actually not much more work, probably, for a one-off. Okay, so you're you're grinding it out by hand with like, yeah, belt sanders and angle grinders and yep. what have you. Yeah, and then yeah, and these days I just use the belt. Again. These days I do everything on a linisher. Okay. I've tried using grindstones and angle grinders, but the linisher lets me get the precision I want right from the beginning instead of doing a rough grind and then having to try and even it all out. And actually, okay, linishers so, are really, really fast. Okay, the only linisher I'm familiar with is one I've used in woodwork, which is a giant machine, like a belt sander, that's going horizontally yep. in front of you. It's about six mm-hmm. feet wide, and you put put pieces of wood underneath it. Yep. Is that the same sort of thing we're talking about? Similar idea. Um, they, The ones for swords and knife making tend to be uh, narrower the the belt's about two inches wide okay five centimeters for for the metrically inclined uh, and they run pretty fast uh, one of my one of my linishes the fast one runs at 30 meters a second that's pretty quick it is yeah um, it's also fast enough that you can do a lot of damage if the belt snaps or you yeah accidentally touch with your knuckles and things ah, like that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I have, you can't, you can't see it on the thing, but I have this little callus on the end of my little finger on my left hand. That's, it's just like this, this callus that will yeah. never go away. It's been there for over 20 years because I was shaping a little piece of wood on a belt sander. You have like a, a static belt yep. sander and you shape a little piece of wood on it, mm-hmm. which was for, I don't know, repairing some antique, bit of antique furniture and my little finger just touched the belt yeah right and it just whipped off all the skin right which is grown yep. back in this callus that has just it just won't go away <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. um, yep. same sort of thing yeah so do you have all your fingers yeah yep yeah okay yes i, I can confirm i have seen yes. peter lyon yep. has all um, his i haven't fingers. lost i haven't lost any bits um yeah, uh, I wear gloves when I'm grinding. They're, they're just the, the lightweight gardening type gloves. And all that is, is if I actually, if I accidentally touch the linisher with like with my knuckles, it just gives me that half second to flinch back before it actually yeah. hits skin. <laughs> so, so, so the, yeah, so the, the gloves are ablative. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I, I have, actually handle some of your historical martial arts swords or swords intended for that sort of use and they are absolutely lovely and I, I when I checked your website before this interview I was very sad to see that you're no longer taking commissions I imagine Wheater workshop keeps you too too busy um, so what is the difference between making swords for a movie and swords for historical martial arts um, okay uh, probably I should talk about HEMA first because sure. the challenge with HEMA and reenactment as a subset of that is that you've got rules about things like the edges can't be sharp generally like unless you've got people who are specifically training with sharp weapons the edges have to be blunt and of course if you just make thick edges and don't change anything else about the blade you get a lot more metal in the blade the sword is too heavy uh, this is something people don't realise too often is that um, the blunts that we use today are 
a lot heavier than they ought to be generally. Mm-hmm. Some of them are. Yep. And, and the way you get around that is that you either build stronger wrists or people put heavier pommels on, which is its own problem because then yep. you just get an overall really heavy sword. So, yeah, so HEMA swords, um, depending on the rule set you're working on, they can actually be quite heavy and quite blade heavy. And it's really hard to get them to handle like the original. Though there are tricks around that, but it does involve that you change the cross section of the blade. So, say, instead of being a, a diamond cross section that comes to a sharp edge, it might be a case of I do a hollow ground cross section that comes to a thin section and then fattens out to a, an edge that could be up to three millimeters thick okay. and so the flex and the weight and the balance should be closer to the original but you still get that blunt edge that you want yeah I've films, seen a couple it's of, all about look yeah yeah I, I've Sorry. seen a couple of um, historical martial arts blade designs that seem to work really well for that like I have an arms and armor factor spear which has an entirely rectangular cross section which means that they can yes. you can get that thick edge, but you don't have a thick spine in the middle adding the weight. And Gus Trim is making or has made what what my friends in Seattle call I beam swords because in cross section they have a very thin middle and then they fatten out to edges. So most of the mass of the sword is in the edges, and the actual centre yep. bit instead of being thick like in a normal sword, it is thinned out to yep. almost nothing. Yes, yes. And other things I've seen done are uh, maybe similar to the I-beam principle, but because that still tends to have a fair bit of metal in it, you can just make the whole blade narrower because you're still getting, you're losing the look, but you're getting the feel, which is right. more important for HEMA. Film, of course, is the exact opposite. There it's all about look. Yeah. Everything else is secondary because film is a visual medium, uh, the sound is added later. Um, the actors can deal with heavier swords if they have to, or they use aluminium-bladed versions if they want to uh, look more impressive. And so it's all about the image that they can capture. Okay. So, all right. You went into sword making to make swords that you were actually going to use. And you, yeah, and, for reenactors, when I was one as myself. Yeah, okay. So it's, it's a bit of a shift to be making swords as primarily um, sort of sculptures, visual objects? Yeah, things that, pretty much. Okay. What does that feel like? Well, it's interesting because I could still apply what I knew about making a good sword to the film props because some of the... Some of the things that they would want are still applicable. For example, you don't want a super heavy sword because then the actors may not like it and they'll ask for the plastic or aluminium bladed versions. And so if you want to get a lot of the the steel sword shots, especially for close-ups, then making a sword that's actually got decent weight and balance is still a good thing. So I'm still able to apply what I know about making good swords in terms of weight and balance, but still try and get the look that the director is wanting. Okay, so it's, a, it's an enjoyable challenge then? It is. So the challenge is really technical in that, okay, I'm, I'm being given this drawing. Admittedly, these days there are a lot more 
precise about what they want, so I've got less leeway than I had on Lord of the Rings. But back then I was able to take the design and interpret it a fair bit. Okay. Okay, one question just popped into my head. Right, you've made all of these swords for all these movies. What happens to them when the movie's over? Ah, yes, a lot of people want to know that one. Okay. Um, some of them are still hanging on the wall in the room that I work in. Okay. So we've still got we've still got some of the original steel hero swords from Lord of the Rings. So when I come to visit the you there and I walk out stiff-legged, you'll understand why. Yeah, there could be various <laughs> reasons, but... <laughs> Well, I just a sort a sword down each leg, and you can kind of walk yeah. out. <laughs> yeah, don't worry. I'll, okay, I'll make sure now that I count them if you come. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, so some of them ended up there, and some of them are probably on things like director and producer walls over in Hollywood, because there okay. was a, a container load of Lord of the Rings props sent over to LA, and uh, the rest belonged to Peter Jackson. Okay. As far as I'm aware. All right, so he's probably got a few in his house. All right, and we can find out where yep. he lives. Um, what about the Indiana Jones swords? Um, we've got one of the prop ones sitting on the wall, but the steel ones don't know where they went. Uh, like all these things belong to the production company. Right. You know, because yeah. my contract is with Weta for my labor, mm. and Weta has a contract with the production company to supply the props. And uh, generally, the production company owns the props. And at the end of a of film, you know that you know the closing scene out of Indiana Jones with the the warehouse. Yep. Yes. There, there are there Raise are the prop warehouses like that in various parts of the world where all the stuff that was made for a film, if they decide they want to keep it, they go into a huge warehouse somewhere. Oh my God. Yep. Or occasionally they have big auctions after a production's wrapped because. What's the point of keeping it if you have to just pay for storing it? Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's better that it goes to the fans, really. Mm. Yeah. Or some some who, who, who will actually appreciate it. Yes. Um, some, of the, some of the swords actually go for surprisingly good prices. Uh, the steel... I saw a few of the steel hero swords from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe right. that came up on auction a couple of years ago. And the prices they were going for were about the same or even less than they cost for the production company to buy from Weta. Wow. So, so these were swords going for less than $2,000. That's pretty cheap. And, you know, these are these film-used steel hero swords. Lord of the Rings, on the other hand, you can add a couple of zeros to those. <laughs> but because yeah. it's all about... It's all about the the film. It's like another classic example is the Maltese Falcon. Mm -hmm. Okay, 1940s film. The Maltese Falcon was meant to be made of solid gold. And what they did was they made two of them in lead. Yep. So that I think it was Humphrey Bogart had to actually lift this 50-pound lead eagle that was meant to be solid gold. And so it looked like it was super heavy because it was. Yeah. And uh, they thought there was only one of them. It sold at auction for about half a million dollars, mm -hmm. a lead casting, because oh it God. was the Maltese Falcon. From the movie, yeah. Yep. And then they found the second one. <laughs> <laughs> that would be very annoying yes. if you own the first one. But, but it does show the cachet that goes with uh, having the original film prop that appeared on screen, Yeah, that's worth a lot. 
Yeah. I Even sometimes the actual prop, when you see it, is not as impressive as it might have looked on screen. But yeah, but it doesn't actually matter. Cause, no, because uh, it, it is the thing. It is like, that thing that everyone saw. Yeah. Now, um, after we recorded this, but long before this episode goes out, I have an episode with Jason Kingsley, uh, who does Modern History TV. He also runs Rebellion, the games company. And he did a video on his YouTube channel thing of him with the Hawk the Slayer original prop sword. Right? And yep. for for Hawk the Slayer fans, that's just maximum geek is a is is right there. That like it's the actual one from the actual movie. And you can you can get reproductions of it. And you can get reproductions of it that are actually probably made better than the original and handled better than the original. But yep. it's the original, the one that was actually yep. in the movie is the There's one that you want. Yeah. It's magic. Cool. Okay. Um, I have a, a, a couple of questions that I, I tend to ask uh, most of my guests. And the first is, what is the best idea you haven't acted on? Uh, that's okay. That's a bit of an, an odd one. Okay. Are we talking swords here or film props in general? We're, we're talking absolutely. However you interpret okay. the question is legit. Okay, okay. There's been a project that that I've been wanting to do for years, but it's it needs a bit of R and D money. So okay. maybe some of your Tell listeners could help. Ah, okay, okay. Um, okay. In the in Avatar, the 2007 movie, mm-hmm. um, you know, you've got lots of guns. Some of those gu- a lot of those guns were actually uh, were actually automatic fire guns in plastic shells, but. Where to produce some uh, mechanical guns to emulate some of the things like shell ejection and recoil and muzzle flash and things like that. And uh, ever since then, it, I sort of always saw that as a missed opportunity because the props we made did the job, but they were very basic and very bulky. And so I've been working, you know, for the 12 or so years since then tweaking designs in my head and on paper about how you could make things like automatic fire guns that are props rather than guns. And I've pretty much nailed it, like as okay. a paper exercise, but they've just got to be made. Okay, I have, a, I have a couple of points to kind of circle back on. So for that movie, they took actual fully automatic weapons yes. and they put a plastic case around them Yes, so and? so they called they were called mini fourteens. Okay. Um, so I think they were similar to AR fifteen mechanics. So okay. essentially, you take the take the the gun casing off and you put this inside a plastic casing. Um, it's pretty common on films that you'll take an actual gun and then you'll add stuff on top of it to break up the outline and make it look different. But of course, that's always making it bigger. Yeah, and uh, so I've been trying to. I've been working on ideas about ways that we could remove the dangers of blank fire guns, and also mm-hmm. also all the problems that go with them, even if they're not actually dangers, and just turn them into a prop that does okay. the things you want from a gun on set, which are often not the things that guns are good at. Like what? So, 
well, okay, guns are good at killing things. Yep. You don't want that on set. Guns make a lot of noise. The problem you have there is that the sound that they make on set is not used in the film because you have to re-record it all anyway. Yeah. So then it's just a nuisance. And you have to wear earplugs and then actors have to have um, makeup that hides the earplugs. Yeah. Uh, you have hot brass being ejected. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some very funny videos of hot brass going down people's backs from firing lines. I experienced lines. that. Uh-huh. Yes, it's, okay. yeah, yes. Shoot, shooting yeah. heavy you do guns. The, I, I think you do a little dance. Yes, yes. It's exactly like when you're forging and a bit of the scale yes. jumps off and, and hits your neck. I've had that yep, too, exactly. and it's yep. very painful. Yep. So, so, the, so there's lots of these things about real guns on set that are actually not useful for the filmmaking process. Mm-hmm. And the sort of things you do want is like you want the recoil, which blank fire guns are actually really crappy at, because yeah. there's no projectile holding back that high that high pressure gas that makes the kick. Um, it's also bad for automatic weapons because they don't cycle reliably. Yeah. Uh, same reasons. So if they could be made entirely mechanical, then there's a place for those on set. And Absolutely. besides removing the danger aspect, it actually I think would help the economics of filmmaking. So as soon as you have a gun, right. you need armourers, you've got all these safeties that go with things, you've got limits to what you can do in a shot, like you don't point a gun directly at camera or at a person. Yeah. Uh, yep. Um, except in a certain unfortunate incident that's just happened in the States. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, like, unless you do things like you can point a gun close to an actor, directly at an actor, if you're not worried about things like the wadding getting shot at them because that's yeah, another yeah. thing blank fire guns you have wadding and within a, a range of 10 meters or so that's actually quite dangerous still sure people get killed with blanks mm. um okay so basically so this these guns you do they won't make much noise but they will give recoil yep uh what they about sh- muzzle flash have, yeah leds See again, um, uh, these days okay. it's all about it's all about matching it to the action, so that in post production you add digital muzzle flash. A lot right, of the stuff okay. you see on in films these days with these massive muzzle flashes of guns, they've taken the muzzle flash that you get from blank fire and they've enhanced it anyway. Right. So quite right. often it's an overlay. So so again, you're still doing digital digital work on these things. So you might as well have. Yeah, Might as well just have a ti- a, an LED for timing, and then you digitally add whatever muzzle flash you want. Um, okay, so so yeah. you 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 would have these realistic looking, but completely safe. So no yep. no yep. technical technical expertise required, no particular safety precautions required. No. But, things yep. that will make probably like a clicking noise when you pull the trigger will give you recoil, so the actor's hand moves correctly, and a a light flash at the end so you can time where, yep. you, where to put the real mug. Yep. That's a genius idea. Yeah. Well, we were doing it on Avatar, but it was a very, very crude interpretation of it. And with uh, better electronics and stronger motors and all sorts of stuff today, like LEDs have advanced so much in the last 15 years, for example. They have. That, yeah. uh, you know, the things you can do are just so much more now. So would, and would so, this gun um, eject brass yep uh, the ones that we did for 
the ones that we did for Avatar were doing that 15 years ago, or 14 years ago. Huh. That is a really interesting idea. Yeah. It's just something that hasn't been advanced much since then, because um, it's like a lot of these things, you've got to get over a certain hump, and that requires money to do your R&D yeah. and build your first units. And then you can mass produce things like your power modules and your control modules and things, and and then you, you build modular stuff into the design of a gun. Uh, it's just a matter of getting there. Huh. So the Peter Lyon um, prop gun company. <laughs> yes? Something like that? Uh, not quite. No, unfortunately, um, a lot of this has been developed on Weta's time. So, oh, okay. uh, so, uh, so, yeah, so... I'd love to see it done, but it will be under their auspices. Okay, it's a matter of the right production coming along and saying, yeah, we would rather have spend a bit of money to get these developed than, than spend money elsewhere getting uh, blank fire guns. There are okay. still some directors that love things that go bang, uh, yeah. but you just won't get past that. But in yeah. terms of what you actually want to get on set, Blank fire guns are quite often not worth the hassle. Right. And and usually they are regular guns just loaded with blanks and, yep. and causing all sorts yep. of opportunities. Yep. And, of course, particularly if you've got automatic weapons, mm -hmm. in, a, in most countries, those are particular problems. Yeah. Yeah, it's very difficult like, to get uh, in Britain. Yeah. Well, like, for example, the, the blank fire guns that were used on Avatar... We just can't do them now in New Zealand because the gun laws have changed. Huh. So, okay, since the since the Christchurch shooting a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. uh, the rules have tightened up on things like magazine capacities, uh, military-style weapons, and particularly automatic weapons. Right. And so even, just being able to own own those to, to hire out as props for films is a big big deal these days right hmm okay yeah that that's really interesting and and you know who knows maybe somebody listening will be going do you know what hmm yes we should maybe get into that okay yeah. well, <laughs> if somebody if somebody's if somebody's got a spare few thousand dollars lying around give me a call <laughs> and we'll talk <laughs> <laughs> yeah I guess half the problem though is, is that if, if you've been developing it on Weta Workshop's time then they are going to end up owning the intellectual property around yes that. that's right yep. which means it's not an investment for no not really somebody if I won lotto I would actually just say <clears throat> I want to do this and I'd the thing is I can't do it myself because I've got the ideas on paper, but I'm I can't do the computer stuff. I can't do the uh, programming and stuff that would be needed for it. But if I won lotto, hell, I'd I'd be talking to Richard tomorrow and saying, "Hey, let's do this. You know, let's just do this." Okay. And then the market will appear. I think it probably would. Actually, if it was just available, I think it probably yep. would. That's one of the tricks. Is it's the chicken and egg situation, of course. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, it's one of those things, you know, if, if, if Ford had famously, if Ford had listened to the market, he would have made a faster horse. 
because that's what they wanted. Um, or a horse that ate less or something like that. Okay. All right. So I don't think this next question is um, is sort of going to go straight back to the previous one because it is, if you had a million dollars, or let's not New Zealand dollars, like, like so let's say pounds, or <laughs> some, some very large sum of money to spend improving. Okay, let me be specific. Historical martial arts, not movie yes. prop production worldwide. How would you spend it? Yeah, that's one I've had to think about because I'm not actually that much involved in the historic martial arts side of things anymore. Okay. What I would actually probably want to do is to um, try and get some, figure out some way to convince people who make films to show good sword work and how good sword work can also be really good cinematically. Okay. Interesting. That makes sense. So you would you would be interested in developing some kind of program or some some way to get people who are making films and making those sort of directory decisions to prioritize historical accuracy. Yes. Well, not even necessarily historical accuracy as such, but they fall back into patterns. So yeah. So you get this thing of actors can do a certain amount, but they're not swordsmen usually. Mm-hmm. And so they're choreographing fight scenes and things like this. But so you tend to choreograph a lot like stage combat is done because that's what a lot of fight directors know. But if there, there are some really, really cool historical moves that could really be integrated so easily into film stuff that would look so cool. Like Fiore has some stuff that I love. Mm. You know, disarming moves and things like that that get around this cliche of people hammering away at each other using the swords like axes and you know, without the finesse that we know that they're capable of. Right, and, and without the finesse that a sword needs, because if you use it without the finesse, you just break the sword. Yes, yes. Which we yeah, do the, see. Yeah. Yes. The, um, the comparison I make is it's like if you or I were given a Formula One car to drive, we would destroy it in minutes. Yeah. One bad, uh, one bad gear change and you blow the engine. It's that sort of thing that if you abuse a sword, it'll break. If it's right. a sword that's made to be used as a sword rather than, uh, you know, for breaking breeze blocks and things like that, mm-hmm. if it's made to actually be used as a fighting weapon, it's not made to take that sort of abuse. Right. Like, there's this... Ridley Scott, since Gladiator, I don't think he's done anything good, but his horrible Robin Hood movie, there's this scene <laughs> yeah. in it where I think it is... I think it's the Russell Crowe Robin Hood character person who uses his sword to lever up a flagstone because there's something hidden underneath Uh. right and it's like you get this close up of this sword kind of being shoved under and basically being used like a crowbar it's like Mm -hmm. ah (laughs) not what they're good for (laughs) no no really not either either the sword is well made and you damage it or it's less well made and you break it and one thing's for sure is no one who ever actually uses swords would ever do that with a sword. It's no, just not what no. they're for. Or, or if it's made to be used as a crowbar, then it's too heavy. Right, then it's a useless sword, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was extremely but, painful. Yes, but you know, so few people actually appreciate any of the nuances that go with that, of course. 
to them from what they've seen on screen is often that swords are crowbars right but you know sensibilities can be changed we've seen it right? yeah but in, it takes in, a in lot of work or or it takes one really popular franchise to emphasize it and make it a selling point yeah yeah you also have the problem that when you consider the whole scale and scope of making a film project, things like one guy putting his hand up and saying, hey, you're doing the thing, sword things wrong, the director will say, oh, who the fuck was that? Sorry, am I allowed to use swear words yeah, in your, yeah, right, your yeah, podcast? Yeah, you certainly okay, are, sir. Yeah, it's like, okay, who was that? All right, they don't work for us anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, because they're, they're just being annoying. But like, okay, think about the Marvel Universe. Right? It has all sorts of internal yeah. rules about what these particular superheroes can and can't do. Right? And if you, if you made... Okay, I'm not, I'm not a superhero movie sort of person terribly much. I mean, I don't object to them, but I don't tend to watch terribly much. But just imagine if you just decided that actually Superman is not vulnerable to kryptonite anymore. It's just not. Right? It doesn't do anything to it. Right? There would be just outrage. Kryptonite is supposed to hurt Superman. Yeah. Right, um, and you know, whenever whenever directors sort of break canon on anything that's that's built into the universe, the fans get very cross. Oh, they scream! Right, exactly. So it's just a question of educating the fans to expect that as mm-hmm. canon. Yeah. And once you've got that, then you have this enormous external pressure to get things right in the movie. Yeah. Though, if anything. Over the last 50 years, we've seen the exact opposite, that the, you've trained the audience to think that a sword is used like a sledgehammer. Yeah, true. But, you know, that, we, we also but, trained I mean, the yeah. audience to expect heroes to smoke. Yes. Yeah. Of course, then you do have the exceptions. Like, again, one of my favourite films is The Duelists. Yeah, fantastic film. Again, also Ridley Scott. Yeah, exactly. In his own, so Ridley Scott got famous. Yeah, yeah. One of Ridley Scott's lovely gems of a film, before he got big budgets and mm. yeah, decided to to use them appropriately. But like, the sword work in that is lovely, and it's also different swords used with with more or less appropriate techniques. Right. And then you get to things like Robin Hood and now the Last Duel. Have you seen that? Oh. No, I'm not going to. There's just too many things <laughs> wrong with it. I just okay. Like, I've got to admit. Okay, I, I'll I'll say this now. The shorts for it had mm-hmm. me fuming. The yeah. film is a lot better than the shorts. The shorts look, okay. they look, look like look they were they were put together by somebody who hated the films and wanted people to not go and see it. Oh really? But it's actually okay. it's actually historic. It's got a lot of good historical stuff in it, not just. Well, the sword work is actually not that flash. It is, again, two armoured guys wailing away at each other in the final fight. But a okay. lot of the other stuff in there about legal, uh, the medieval law mm. and social norms and all this other stuff is actually really good. It's just okay. sort of, it's almost not the film, it's not the film that you see in the shorts. Interesting. Is it all dark? Unfortunately, it's it's had the the whole grey sepia thing done to it. 
Uh, yeah, it just, it just annoys me so much. It's like, I know. it was always cloudy in the Middle Ages. The reason we call them the Dark Ages is because it was cloudy. I mean, it's like, no, yeah. no. People washed back then. People yes. washed their clothes people, and cleaned their houses. Wore, and yeah, people liked wearing bright clothes. They did. And stuff, but yep. And they kept them clean. I actually, you know, I had um, yep. the wonderful Ruth Goodman on the show a while ago. Um, she doesn't do swords, but she does living history to the nth degree. And, you know, she was talking about, you know, laundry and cleaning hmm. back in... Yeah, bathing. Yeah. Right. Bathing was a real social activity. Absolutely. So much so that the church wrote these, like, you shouldn't go to bathhouses because they're immoral because everyone is naked and they're probably fornicating. Yeah. And, and well, yeah. Bless Maybe they were. But, Maybe they were, but the point but, is they were bathing. They were getting into baths yes. and getting clean. And yeah, yeah, okay. Maybe they didn't that. bathe as often as they should, but they understood the value of bathing. Right, and they probably bathed as often as they could. Right, and yeah, okay, so they're not showering every day and they don't have deodorant yes. and what have you, but they can. They have a sense of smell. Yeah. And Funnily enough, I actually blame a lot of this on the Victorians. Right, Because okay. if... I read, I've read a few period books about things like bathing, and uh, it was pretty horrific in the 19th century what people didn't do to look after themselves. Right. And so people look back and think, well, the Middle Ages must have been like that, but worse, because, hey, we're so much more civilized. When actually, uh, no, it was a whole different society. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, did, it didn't but have it was though, different. that industrial concentration. And, and yeah. uh, uh, urbanisation happening faster yeah. than and, the and people not cope with. And also people being very poor, crammed together, right. and just not even being able to look after basic sanitation. Right. Sure, uh, a medieval city was, like Paris was a pretty horrible, shitty place, literally. Yeah. But uh, a lot of, lot of Europe, keeping clean wasn't that difficult. Right. And they did it. And, and if you want to know how they did it, you need to listen to the episode with Ruth because she's fabulous. Yeah. And, and incidentally, I'm actually interviewing um, Dr. Ariella Elmer uh, next week. And she is a scholar of sort of medieval legal stuff. And we're going to be talking oh, yeah. about the movie The Last Duel a lot. Oh, <laughs> so, okay. But it'll I'm be, very glad be, that you told me because now... It'll be now, really interesting to have her spin on it because yeah. my my sort of fairly small understanding of the medieval legal precedence is that they got it fairly right. Okay. I wouldn't I, be surprised I, if Ridley Scott was using some of the original court documents that led up to the duel, perhaps. Well, I think I think he's basing it on the book. Yes, he is. That, uh, and the book is based on quite a lot of research. Um, but, I, I, yeah, well... Um, Ariella's episode will be going out a couple of weeks after this one, so people who are listening can tune in in a couple of weeks' time and, and get get the lowdown nitty gritty on the on the legal stuff. Brilliant. Um, okay, so you, you'd spend your money um, influencing directors to take the historical side of things more seriously. Not necessarily yeah. more seriously, but just show them that uh, sword fighting can also be. It's got a lot of things. Think of it like dance rather than the way that they film a lot of sword fighting. Is that uh, a good sword fight is like a dance. 
and that there's a lot of things that can be happening. It's not always just strike and parry. You know, you can yeah. have disarming attempts, you can have hand deflections, you can have unbalancing moves, things like that that uh, are harder to train actors to do convincingly while they're also trying to act on cue and everything else. But yeah. it'll be really cool to see some of this stuff done. I mean, and just look at the level of sort of technical excellence they put into the unarmed combat, right? Absolutely incredible, incredible physical skill being shown by these um, stunt doubles and, and what have you, and even sometimes the actors themselves. And it's like, why can't we have that level of physicality with a sword fight? It's really? a really good question. Huh. Okay, and that's that's where your money would go. Brilliant. Okay, I think I would give it to you. Uh, unfortunately, um, oh, my, I'll look my... forward to the check. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the money is imaginary, I'm afraid, and uh, I, 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 everyone. Sorry, I've just asked... like my lotto win. <laughs> that's right, and everyone I've everyone I've asked on, on the show uh, who I've asked that question to has had some really good idea that I've wanted to give them millions of dollars to make happen. Uh, actually. Getting it into the movies is a really good way of getting it into popular consciousness. So I think I might even add in an extra half mil just to kind of encourage you. <laughs> Brilliant. Yep, you're on. <laughs> now, now just win lotto. Yeah. Okay, I'll get on with that. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Peter. It's been lovely talking yeah. to you. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Peter. You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. While you're there, you can and definitely should sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. The mailing list uh, is normally one email a week on a Friday where I sort of share some stuff about what's going on with my work life and swords and even flying and things like that. Um, as well as some usually weapon-specific stuff for the rapier people and for the longsword people. So it's just a bit of um, something of a sword fix at the end of the week for my sword people. So if that sounds like your sort of thing, by all means sign up for the mailing list. And no offence if not, email is not everyone's cup of tea. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. And I have some fantastic future guests coming up. And yes, my patrons have provided some very interesting questions for them. So that's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. Thanks, as always, to Andrew Lawrence King, who, incidentally, I'm going to be interviewing in about an hour's time from recording this, for the Baroque Harp accents originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Stephanie Ayuto, who is a knife maker and also a former international level saber fencer. So we get into the weeds a little bit about um, the the process of like international level um, Olympic fencing and also smithing, and we geek out a bit about steel and how it works. <laughs> Um, and there's some technical stuff in there and it's a really good fun interview um, in fact one of the great pleasures of 
having started this podcast, is I get to talk to all sorts of people I would not otherwise have met. And it is just a delight. So you don't want to miss my conversation with Stephanie. I am sure you don't because you're a sword person and you like blades. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really does help. Thanks for listening and I will see you next week. Thank you.